0: Tell me your middle age without telling me your middle age. Your afternoon drink on a Saturday is therapy.
1: It's delightful.
0: <laughs> Welcome to 10 Cent Takes, the podcast where we throw elbows and natural ones, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the Cleric of Chaos herself, Jessica Fraser.
1: The Cleric of Chaos, I love it. I'll pray to that.
2: Right. <laughs> How are you doing?
1: I am I'm drinking Theraflu. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah.
1: How are you, Mike?
0: Oh, I'm doing fine. You know, I can't complain. I was in the city for uh, a work thing Wednesday through Friday, and I'm very glad to be home. Well, Welcome back. It was weird. It was the first time in years that I'd actually not been at home with Sarah and the dogs. Wow. I was like, this isn't actually that fun. Like, Aww. I miss having my dogs. I miss having something to cuddle with.
1: Yeah. Having someone actually, like, talk to when you have something funny to say or whatever
0: oh yeah one of my coworkers was sitting there going so are are you relieved to be away from your family for a little bit and i was like well not really and then it was oh you're one of those people that actually loves his family i'm like <laughs> okay i think so
1: can, what is what is wrong with heteronormative families like they hate each other like husbands hate wives like what is that
0: like, why is know. that
1: such a thing Such a trope in our society of like, ha ha, I hate my significant other. It's like, what? Why? Why are you with this person? Like, I'm very Yeah,
0: right? I I don't get it. I don't
1: understand that at all. Yeah.
0: I straight up don't get it.
1: You straight up don't get it? Yeah, hetero people. (laughs) Let us know. Let us know what's going on with you. Are you okay?
0: Blink twice. (laughs) If you are new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to look at comics in ways that are fun and informative. We always like to check out the coolest, the weirdest, the silliest moments, and then examine how they are woven into the larger fabric, of pop culture, and history. If you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it would be a huge help if you would rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods, because that always really helps with our discoverability. And just a friendly reminder, we have pulled all of our content off of Spotify, given how the platform is continuing to actively promote voices, spreading vaccine disinformation. Today we are going to continue our series looking at Dungeons and Dragons early history in comic books. Last episode we scoped out The Realm, an independent comic that managed to deliver a D&D style story to comic readers roughly a year before TSR was able to really give one of their stories the four-color treatment. And in this episode we're going to talk about The Dragonlance Saga, a collection of graphic novels that served as the first official Dungeons and Dragons comics. But before we do that, Jessica, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately?
1: So, you have been talking about this comic so much, and so I finally picked up volume one trade paperback of The Nice House on the
0: Lake. Nice. It's so good.
1: Yes. So I'm, I am I will admit I'm only a bit into it. The characters are being introduced. We're seeing the house for the first time. Mm-hmm. But it's already interesting how the characters are interacting with each other, first of all. And then also how they're being described. Because they have a little description mm-hmm. bubble that says, like, their name, their age, and, like, artist or comedian. And it's like, okay, like, what's happening here? Are you assembling? A, is this? Are you, like, Nick Furying this? Is that what's happening here? Mm-hmm. But they're all like categorized under clusters and the characters are all interconnected so far. So I'm interested to see how this plays out with each of them. Um, But again, I haven't gotten that far into the plot line just yet. So I'm excited to see where it goes because it's interesting so far.
0: Yeah, it's um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's a trip. I really like that comic a lot. Nice. Yeah, I'm stoked. I'm stoked. Yeah, you'll have to tell me what you think about it when you're a little bit further along.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What about you, Mike?
0: Well, Sarah and I got HBO Max hooked up again to our new TV, and we just finished watching the first season of Our Flag Means Death, which is that pirate show that Taika Waititi's been working on. Ooh. It's really good. It's a a very loose adaptation of the real history of the gentleman pirate from the golden age of piracy, and it's starring Reese Darby, who... You would recognize him if you've seen like Flight of the Concords. He was kind of like their manager from New Zealand.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: So he plays this guy named Steve Bonnet who was a real life aristocrat who then suddenly decided to abandon everything and then become a pirate. And he was known as the Gentleman Pirate. And he actually hung out with Blackbeard which they have in the show. Blackbeard is played by Taika Watiti, And it's, Really weird and really funny and, and very sweet in a lot of ways. It's a really fun show, and Sarah and I ripped through it a couple of days. Nice. I think season two has already been given a green light and it gets very queer. And so it was a lot of fun. We really loved it. And I want a comic book of it now. <laughs> Excellent. That sounds great. There is a pretty rock and pirate comic right now called Man Among You, which is about and Bonnie and Mary Reed, who were lady pirates from the same era, which is also a lot of fun. So, if you're looking for something like that, feel free to check it out.
1: You know I'm always looking for lady pirates. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, shall we uh, saunter on over to the actual topic of our episode?
1: Let's journey right over. (laughs)
0: Let's wade into that melee. Okay, first things first. What do you know about Dragonlance?
1: Well, I actually didn't know anything about it until we read it for this episode. I can't say that I fully understand it after reading it either, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. It's like when you assigned this, I was like, "Oh, cool. There's only five issues. This week is cake. No big deal. Yeah. I'll be able to get through this super quick, easy peasy." <laughs> so I like procrastinated, you know. And then I was mortified when I sat down to read them and I got Pretty far into it. And I was like, getting to the point where I was like, this feels like the end of a comic. Like, this, mm-hmm. this, the, the the amount of pages feels like the end of a comic. But it just, it kept going. And I got to a point where I was like, on page like 50 something. And I was like, I got to figure out how long this thing is. And I scrolled to the end. And I was like, 75 motherfucking pages. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> and this, like, yep. it's not only that, but like, it's fucking dense because yeah. it's like the exposition is on fire. It is mm-hmm. inside, it's burning, it is so much. It's like, they explain things, they draw. Yeah. What is the point of that? This is why you have this medium, is because you get to do both. Please just don't make them, oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, we'll, so, uh, we'll talk about all of that once we actually get to the graphic novels. Yeah, but yeah. so
1: kids, let this be a lesson to you. Don't do this, this classic Jessica move of procrastination. Because <laughs> it only gets you late night studying, kids, and I'm too old for this shit.
0: Yeah. Well, let's take a step back and let's talk about Dragonlance itself. This was a setting that was originally created by a husband and wife team, Laura and Tracy Hickman. Shortly after they got married and they were living in Provo, Utah in the 70s, Laura introduced her husband, Tracy, to Dungeons & Dragons, and then they started writing and self-publishing modules for the game. And that helped them develop a reputation with the local tabletop community. And then when Tracy's business partner left them with $30,000 in debt, they were really struggling financially. And I think they actually had to declare bankruptcy. I'm not entirely certain about that. Damn. Yeah, they heard that the D&D publisher, TSR, Would pay $500 for new modules. So the Hickmans decided to send two of them that they had written. There was Rahasia and Pharaoh, which they'd already self published, to the company. And TSR liked the modules enough that they decided to actually hire the Hickmans, which meant that the Hickmans had to move from Utah to Wisconsin. And they apparently came up with the idea for Dragonlance on their cross country drive. So Dragonlance is set in Crin. And my understanding is that this is the first time there was a fully created game world for Dungeons and Dragons in one of its settings instead of something that was built piecemeal like they did with Greyhawk. TSR really embraced this project and they decided to make it the focus of their first real transmedia push for lack of a better term. So like not only were they publishing this setting but then they also decided to do things like board games and novels and miniature figures and video games And by this point, Tracy Hickman and then a book editor who was working at TSR named Margaret Weiss were working with an author for the first novel in this setting called Dragons of Autumn Twilight, but they decided to write the book themselves because they weren't happy with how the writer's work was coming out. This was the first novel for either of them, and TSR really didn't seem to have a lot of faith in it. There's a sci-fi fantasy enthusiast news site called SF Crow's Nest. And they did an interview with Weiss and Hickman about 20 years ago that noted how TSR basically tried to order less than they could for the minimum number of copies of the book because they didn't have a lot of faith in like the distribution. They didn't think it would sell that well because they were unknown authors. And so effectively, the company wanted to only order like 30,000 copies, I think, instead of the minimum of 50,000. Oh, geez. Yeah. And then they had to settle for the minimum 50,000. And then the novel was apparently a runaway success. And it was like going back to print once a week. So based on that success, it makes sense that TSR decided to adapt the novel and its sequels into a graphic novel format to try to break into the comics market. I think I mentioned in the last episode that the realm wound up being popular enough to survive the demise of its original imprint, Arrow Comics, and that Sword and Sorcery Comics were performing pretty decently for Marvel and DC. So my theory is that the folks behind Dungeons & Dragons realized that this was an opportunity that they could tap into at the time. And the comic book market at this point in time was also proving pretty lucrative because you had this resurgence going on at Marvel that we've talked about in the 80s under Jim Shooter's guidance, as well as the indie comic scene being a a pretty big thing thanks to stuff like Dark Horse's early success and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Prior to this, like TSR had sort of started interacting with comics fans in different ways. In 1984, they were publishing a tabletop game called Marvel Superheroes, and it wasn't as big a hit as D&D, but the game wound up with a fairly dedicated fan base that apparently was still playing it in the mid-aughts, like over a decade after the last supplement was released. And then there was a number of advertisements that were basically one-page mini comics with a form you could fill out and send to TSR for a free catalog. Alongside that, With the popularity of the cartoon show that we discussed last episode, there was also a comic called Dragones y Mosmaras, which was a comic adaptation of all 27 episodes of the animated series. These were done by Comics Forum, which was a division of a Spanish publisher, uh, Editorial Planeta de Agostini. So these were officially licensed by TSR, but TSR wasn't really working on them. And then they never really made it over to the United States. That said, they did get a little bit of a presence in the UK. Marvel UK published a couple of translated versions of those comics in the 1987 Summer Special, and then they also did a couple of stories in between some short novels and puzzles in the 1988 Dungeons and Dragons Annual from what I understand because I'm relying on, you know, secondhand sources for this. Apparently the comics were made extremely cheaply. And the production values weren't that great. And they're not considered, you know, real first D&D comics. And I think this is because they were like licensed European productions. And it doesn't sound like TSR was actually all that involved in them. So instead, the first official comics are widely considered to be the Dragonlance Saga. Okay, so it sounds like the Dragonlance Saga is widely considered the first actual D&D comics since they were published by TSR and released here in the States. and. TSR hired this guy Roy Thomas to write the entire series of graphic novels. We actually talked about Roy Thomas a little bit in our last episode, and he was a smart choice for this. Not only was he Stanley's successor as Marvel's editor-in-chief, but he also introduced Conan the Barbarian to comics, and he wrote the majority of Conan's 275-issue series for Marvel from the 70s through the 90s. And then they also hired Thomas Yates to provide the pencils for the first two volumes, And Yates was less than a decade to working in the industry, but he was already doing work for just about everybody. And he'd done some notable fantasy stories like Time Spirits for Marvel and Claw, The Unconquered for DC. And then the next two graphic novels after that were penciled by Tony DeZuniga. Multiple sources claim that he is the first Filipino artist to be accepted by American publishers. And he had a really storied career in comics that involved co-creating Black Orchid and Jonah Hex. And then finally, book five was penciled by Ron Randall, whose recent work at the time included runs on Arak, Son of Thunder, and The Warlord. Additionally, Randall also provided illustrations for the 1985 D&D adventure To Find a King and another one called The Bane of Llewellyn. And the credits pages for the first couple of books don't really follow standard comics attribution, but it sounds like Mark Johnson was on inking duties while Steve Oliff provided colors and. Gene Semekizo was on lettering duty. Books four and five, meanwhile, appear to be colored by Sam Parsons and lettered by Albert de Guzman. So the first two volumes are a comic retelling of the novel Dragons of Autumn Twilight, and they were published in late 1987 and mid-1988. How would you summarize these?
1: So the first one starts off with, like, a cast of characters and like all the exposition that goes behind them. So you have Tannis half Elven and he's like going to end up kind of being like the leader of the pack. Mm-hmm. You have Flint Fireforge. He's a dwarf and he's a fighter and he's one of Tanis's oldest friends. There's Tasselhoff Burfoot and he's a Kender, which I hadn't ever heard of before. Yeah. And apparently they're immune to fear. And he's kind of a shit starter. I love him.
0: I I'd never heard of that race. It's
1: kind of like the rogue. It's the rogue of the group. Yeah. Feels like, yeah. A Sturm Brightblade, and he's a knight of Salamnia. There's Raceland, mm-hmm. who is the brother of Caramon, and Caramon's super strong, and Raceland's like super weak. And there's this whole like dynamic of like Raceland being a fucking wizard, and he's like, incubus like sucking off his brother i don't know it was a whole bad
0: bad vibe I, so it's funny because he's kind of that glass cannon trope of being a wizard where he's like really fragile but has a lot of power at his disposal but he's also like he's kind of got that it's almost like an incel vibe where he's really angry yeah. that people like his brother and not him yeah <laughs> it's just yeah it was a whole one of those thing. things where you know with with 35 years of hindsight, it's just kind of interesting to note, you know, the tropes and how they become tropes.
1: Right. Yeah. But also, let's definitely trust the guy who has snake eyes. Let's definitely do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing is that we're we're introduced to all these characters like after they've been away for five years. So we're yeah. made aware that they have this whole backstory that we never get to see. It's just kind of like, oh, the, the band's back together again. So we're we're starting up on the reunion tour.
1: Yeah, exactly yeah they've all they've all made an agreement, and everybody but one person like shows up again. And so then there's Gold Moon and Riverwind, and Gold Moon is she's a she's basically like a cleric, right in this situation. Mm-hmm. but I don't dig it. She is a white woman. she is blonde. she is definitely supposed to be some sort of Native American, though
2: mm-hmm.
1: It's pretty gross. And then her, like, love interest, will they, won't they, Riverwind. And he's apparently a barbarian, which is just gross. Like, because, again, he's, like, supposed to be a native person. So, yeah, let's make the native person the barbarian. That's real cool. (sighs) Yeah. So, yeah, that's the crew. That's them. They're great. (laughs) So... We get exposition about invading draconians and wars between humans and elves and about the legends of dragons and the dragon lands that is supposed to be able to kill them. But they end up picking up people along the way. And there's always a question about who can be trusted or not. And like they made a wizard name. Well, he keeps being like, yeah, if that's what you want to call me or whatever. It's like, okay, guy. Thanks for being the guy who looks like Gandalf. Yeah. Who looks like my arm tattoo. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) There's always a question about who can be trusted or not and a lot of battling of goblins and they get sent on different side quests and they also end up fighting dragons at one point and there's different types of dragons apparently. And and then they get the spell book of Fistandantilus.
0: Say that five times fast.
1: I refuse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which Raicelin gets his slimy little hands on. Yeah. And... Yeah. So that was I mean I I skipped over a lot. You could probably fill in some maybe necessary details, but that was the overarching.
0: I mean, no, you you've got it you've got it pretty well summarized for broad strokes. That's and that's just the first of the graphic novels.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and the second one is a continuation of the first. So they get captured by slavers and have to escape and they encounter more dragons and they start trying to get the dragon orbs, which can control the dragons apparently, but you have to be able to know how to use them. And so there's a whole mystery about that. Mm-hmm. And there are different types of dragons and different types of dragon orbs. And then one of the dragon orbs gets broke.
0: Yeah. And at the same time, one of the big things is that the red dragons are like the truly evil dragons. But then we get the yes. twist of there's, there's one red dragon that's protecting a bunch of kids. And you know, yeah. and then winds up kind of saving the day when they when they almost get wiped out by another red dragon. It's it's a lot. I mean, yeah, this is a very meandering story that is based on a very dense novel. And we we've talked about this before the episode, but it feels like someone wrote a novel based on their D and D party and the adventures that they were going on and all the side quests. Which it actually that was what they did with the first novel was apparently. They had the module put together, and then they basically just kind of wrote down the exploits of the people who were playtesting it at TSR. Jeez Louise. From what I understand, Weiss and and Hickman both felt like that created a little bit too rigid of a structure. And so from then on out, they were writing the novels and then letting the adventures basically kind of be adapted from that so that they, they didn't have to sit there and adhere to a real rigid structure that felt like it was kind of very episodic. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. So, what were your other thoughts about this? I'm curious. I mean,
1: story wise, I did like the different adventures that they went on. I kind of wish that there wasn't like something big and overarching I was supposed to pay attention to, because it was just hard to capture all of that. You know, I think if I were reading a book and I were able to follow it in that way, and you were able to have like story context built back, like there's there's an easier way of doing that, or maybe it just wasn't done in a way that was like. I don't know. I, I think there was just so much that was overexplained, and you could have taken out some of the exposition, like mm-hmm. exactly what was pictured and left more room for that other stuff that I, I might've had room to digest, you know?
0: Yeah. I think a large part of this, that was the style of narration that Thomas had kind of cut his teeth doing where uh-huh. he basically really came to prominence in the seventies in the comic book industry. And he was doing stuff like Conan. And so it was very exposition heavy. And you look at comics from that era and there is so much text in the dialogue. There's so much descriptive narration going on. It's not a technique that really works for me a lot of the times these days, because I've got pretty bad ADHD. And so like I sit there and like my eyes glaze over when I see that much text. Hard same. Hard same. But you know, like I had to sit there and, you know, buckle down and (laughs) <laughs> kind of fo- forced myself to read it, but it was, you know, it just, it felt very, very passive. It's literally, it's telling, not showing. And then the other thing is that Yates's illustration style, first of all, I want to note that Yates is an incredible illustrator. Like he's, yes. he's a local boy. He lives near us. Like he's, he's in oh. the Santa Rosa area from what I understand. Oh, that's cool. And he is now, I think the official illustrator for Prince Valiant. Like I think he took over a few years ago. Oh, wow. Good for him. Yeah, so he's, like, really talented, and I love I love his style and how storybook it feels, but on the other side, it's very storybook, and it feels like everything that we were looking at, it was scenes from an illustrated book where we were getting the wide-out, you know, shot, and it was kind of, like, overhead a lot of the times, it felt like. Even though it wasn't, but that's just kind of how it felt. Yeah, yeah. It's very definitely a comic... Presented in the style of its time, and I feel like if we were redoing it today, it would be much more dynamic with a lot more camera angles and an action that felt less like frozen moments and much more dynamic. If that makes sense.
1: Yes. Yeah. It does. Absolutely.
0: But the other thing is, I think uh, if they were redoing it, they would also be using a writer who would probably trust the audience a little bit more and doesn't need to be hit over the head with exposition as much. And I'm not knocking Roy Thomas's style. It's just, it's really interesting to note how much things have changed since this was put together.
1: Yeah, I would agree.
0: Yeah. So after this, we get volumes three, four, and five, and they came out across 1988 through 1991, and they adapt the story of the second Dragonlance novel that Weiss and Hickman wrote, which is called Dragons of Winter Night. That story starts out with the, the companions, as they're known, that that party that we've seen, and they they basically spend a lot of time trying to help the refugees of this land that has been decimated by the war that they've been involved with. They wind up meeting a princess named Alhana Starbreeze and a knight of Salamnia named Derek Crownguard, and then they get separated. They get caught in an attack on a city. That splits the party into two groups. And each party half goes with either Alhana or Derek. And Alhana's group makes it to the elven homeland. And it turns out that, like, there are nightmares haunting the land. And it happened because the elven king tried to use a dragon orb. But the heroes managed to overcome the nightmares and then snag the dragon orb for themselves. The other group goes, I get it's like the Dragonlance equivalent of Antarctica. They kill another dragon, they get another dragon orb, they get shipwrecked, and then they wind up getting caught between, it feels like an elven civil war, and, you know, there's this prolonged pursuit, there's a lot of drama between Derek and Sturm about, like, how Derek is trying to get Sturm to make dubious attacks on the elves, and then the party splits again because Derek and Sturm basically bounce and go back to their Order of Knights headquarters while the rest of the group provides a distraction for the pursuing elves. They also meet an elf healer who escapes with the group from their imprisonment, and it turns out she's actually a dragon, but she's just wearing like an elf shape. And then she agrees to help them start making dragon lances, which are the weapons capable of killing dragons so that it can help them defeat the dragon armies that are, I don't know, terrorizing the world. And then... I think that is the end of the first of those stories. Volume four, Race Lynn ends up mastering the dragon orb that he attained earlier. Sturm and Derek have managed to reach their order's headquarters or home base or whatever. And then there's a whole plot line about Derek putting Sturm on trial because he refused to obey orders and there's a lot of politicking and then Sturm gets made into a full knight of the order and Derek is extremely salty about the whole thing. <laughs> yep. It's actually fairly interesting, but like the problem is, is that it's a lot of exposition. It's a lot of people talking so at each other, much. especially on the page, and it's it's one of those things that I think could have been cut from the comic book, and it would have been fine. I
1: heavily agree, although then you wouldn't have had Sturm's like dramatic one tear as he was being knighted.
0: <laughs> we this can't miss
1: that. That's it's important. <laughs>
0: That's very true. <laughs> but so Sturm and Derek are both assigned to protect this this tower called the High Claris Tower. <sighs> Meanwhile, the other group, they make it to it's a city called Flotsam. And it's apparently the D&D version of Moss Isley, like, you know, the wretched hive of scum and villainy. While they're wandering around, Tannis is attacked and then he's rescued by a woman named Kittyara, who is his ex-girlfriend and then apparently Racelin and Caramon's half sister. But she's also, like, yeah. one of the dragon high lords leading an, one of the dragon armies, which, like, uh, like the names. Okay. Yeah. So, Tanis, like, doesn't want to rat out his group. So, he's like, oh, like, I'm wearing this outfit that I stole from one of your officers. I'm a new officer, and I'm under your command. And then they start knocking boots. Um, yeah. You know, he, he's like, yeah. I got to take this bullet for the team. I got I to gotta bang the hot chick
1: yeah the power dynamic with that isn't great not gonna lie
0: it's really not and then we flash to the High Claris Tower which is kind of like the the big dramatic battle of this story there's a showdown between the Knights of Soemnia and some of the companions and the blue dragon army and by the way I think dragon army is spelled like one word throughout isn't it
1: I think it is yeah a lot.
0: <laughs> it's it's a thing derek is there and he orders his knights to basically just attack the dragon army head-on and it's the equivalent of throwing his forces into the medieval fantasy version of a wood chipper Sturm <laughs> in a throwback to like what put him on trial he refuses to follow derek's orders and it proves to be the right decision the dragon army attacks the tower There's another dragon orb within the tower itself and then they figure out that this place is called a dragon trap, which is like a lethal trap for dragons. Sturm manages to keep the army at bay for a little while, but then Kidiara kills him right as Lorana manages to control the dragon orb. The orb lures the two blue dragons with the army inside the traps and the remaining knights kill them with their dragon lances. Kidiara is riding a dragon. She manages to like kind of like turn it away at the last second so we have this period of victory where you know Sturm is dead and and also like Lorana goes out to protect Sturm's body and then runs into Kidiara who basically just reveals that like she's banging Tannis now and then bounces yeah. <laughs> and yep. and then Sturm is buried below the tower eulogized by a very bitter and angry Lorana justifiably there are some final monologues and like I, that's pretty much where it ends. And like, I, I compared this to the novel summary and it feels like a pretty faithful adaptation to be honest, which makes sense. Cause this was like 240 pages of comics.
1: Oh my God. It was so much comic. You guys, it was so much like, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Just thinking about it oh my God. and I like, so, and I, I'm, you know, and again, I read these on tablet. You know, and I don't, my brain doesn't always love reading things on the tablet, especially comics. That's why I end up buying a lot of the, the things that we do for this podcast is because for me, it's just easier to process if I'm physically holding it. And it's more, it, it it's, if it's there, I'll do it. You know what I mean? If it's, if it's not right in front of me, I'm, I forget it exists. So I apparently don't have object permanence. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah, So, so there was, that was the other hard part too, is that it was just like, oh my goodness.
0: Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting because I I managed to track down the physical issues of these books and they are very glossy, very large. And so that helps a little bit when you're trying to read them on tablet. It's tough. (laughs) It's a little overwhelming. How do you feel about these books compared to the first two?
1: I kind of liked it. I was. I found the the last few easier to read. I think the last one was the easiest to read. Yeah. And I liked the. Okay. Did the art style change? It the, did. The last one. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I liked that better. It was easier. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was that was a uh, Ron Randall style.
1: I liked that. Yeah, I liked that art style better. Um, because it was just easier to like follow the the action, and there was a little bit more action. You know, it was yeah. So, yeah, I I did I did like these ones. It felt like one big story, although they kind of had some weird like flashbacky kind of stuff, which was kind of confusing. So, you know, it was uh, it was interesting. This one was this last part was better.
0: Well, yeah, and it's funny because I wrote down the same thing. I was thinking about how book five was actually the easiest one for me to read out of all these volumes because Randall's style feels much more modern in terms of layouts and angles and the way that he depicts action.
1: Oh, that's funny. I did not read ahead. I promise. That's hilarious.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. And then also, it felt like Thomas was doing a little bit less wall of text in the later volumes. It was more show don't tell as the story progressed. There was still a lot of telling, but it felt less so. These stories are so incredibly dense and it's so hard to keep track of who's who, especially as more and more characters get added in. And I mean, like in the summary, I skipped over a lot of stuff. I skipped over anyone who wasn't absolutely critical to the story but it still feels kind of overwhelming and the other thing is that if you missed one of these books or picked one up at random you would have no clue what was going on like none, no idea no this is a very linear story with very defined characters and events Mm -hmm. it is not like a typical comic book series where you could pick something up and kind of get like a rough idea of what's going on it's like no if you pick this up and you're on book four and you've missed book three you're lost good fucking luck
1: exactly exactly
0: yeah i but it's also very interesting to look at these and see how comics have evolved as a storytelling medium and i also i also have to wonder because these and we'll talk about this in a minute but these books were originally published by TSR and then they got picked up by DC eventually I have to wonder if DC kind of was like you guys don't really know what you're doing in terms of how to tell a comic book story like let us take over because the last couple of volumes feel much more digestible along that thought process there is not a lot of info about what was going on at the time but TSR wound up entering into a publishing agreement with DC Comics right in the middle of the graphic novels so the first three of these Dragonlance books were published by TSR, and then DC takes over at book four. And there's really not much documentation about TSR joining forces with DC. So this is mainly armchair theorizing, but it sounds like TSR didn't really know how to market comics. There's an RPG historian named Shannon Applecline who wrote a column, and we'll link to it in the show notes, focusing on D&D comics and how TSR was really struggling to break into the comic market.
1: The Dragonlance comic was well-reviewed, and could have been a classic if given the right support. Unfortunately, TSR mainly distributed it using their existing connections, which put it primarily into game and bookstores. Some combination of TSR's lack of reputation in the comic book industry and their production of the entire series' graphic novels, which were relatively rare at the time, kept it from achieving larger success in the comic book field. Thus, while TSR did publish four more Dragonlance graphic novels, 1988-1991, to 1991, advancing the storyline into Dragons of Spring Dawning, 1985, they never finished the storyline, and the books are almost unknown today. The fifth and final volume is one of the rare TSR collectibles, regularly earning prices over $200 online.
0: Special thanks to Lance Watkins of Comic Book Keepers for our voice cameo this episode. If you want to listen to some more D&D comic book discussions after this episode, Comic Book Keepers is actually doing an episode of Vox Machina's comic next week if we've planned our episodes out properly on the calendar. If not, don't hold me accountable. (laughs) But yeah, from here, DC really took the ball and ran with it. So not only did they publish the later graphic novels of Dragonlance, but then they also started putting out series focused on all of the core D&D properties at the time. There was also an ongoing Dragonlance series in the middle of all this. And we're actually going to talk about those core series in our next episode to varying degrees. But what's interesting about these graphic novels is that the first three are still pretty easy to get a hold of. You can find them at a variety of used bookstores on the web for not much money. But the last two by DC Comics are like shockingly hard to find. And they normally sell for like north of 100 bucks. It, easy. Oh, like they're not Louise. cheap. Yeah, I found no things I managed to find them relatively affordable. I think I paid like 40 bucks for them each, but but you know, that was over okay. time and it was with patience. Yeah, something to note is that dedicated graphic novels weren't the huge market segment back then like they are today, and I am willing to bet that DC really didn't put a lot of focus in a marketing were selling those last two books because they were instead way more focused on publishing the different TSR series they'd licensed. But seeing as how book five ends on a bit of a cliffhanger and was published right around the time that DC and TSR stopped working together, my guess is that the rights were pretty messy and there just wasn't enough of return on investment for either company to keep working on these graphic novel projects after that. Hmm. And that said, Dragonlance wound up being this massively successful franchise for D&D. The campaign setting proved really popular. The books, these graphic novels were based on, sold more than 3 million copies by the late 90s, so who knows how many they've sold now. Dragonlance, as I said, got its own comic series from DC in the 90s. It wound up being the setting for eight video games during this era.
1: Oh, jeez.
0: Yeah. And then there were also nearly 200 novels set in its world.
1: Holy moly.
0: Yeah, it's pretty bonkers. You know, and Dragons of Autumn Twilight even got an animated movie adaptation and it stars, dig this, like, it's actually pretty a pretty all-star cast. So it's got Lucy Lawless, Kiefer Sutherland, Michael Rosenbaum, and Michelle Trachtenberg.
1: What?
0: Yeah, but it's also not great. <laughs> like, Oh, oh, whoop, there it is. Yeah, you can watch it online these days and, I mean, the animation is awful, but there's also a lot of plot points that they just, Cut so they could fit it into a ninety-minute movie. Uh. Yeah, you know. And then, meanwhile, the setting's been notably absent from the fifth edition of D and but it sounds like it's actually going to return to the game soon. So, like a month ago from re- when we're recording, so that would be March. Wizards of the Coast released some new playtest materials called Unearthed Arcana: Heroes of crin and the bundle includes one new race and a subclass and some new backgrounds and some character traits, or character feats. I'm not sure if it's going to be an actual setting or if they're going to do an adventure kind of like they did with Ravenloft and Curse of Strahd, but we'll see. So it'll be really interesting to see what they do with Dragonlance, if they give them the full treatment or not.
1: Wow, that's pretty wild.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of cool to see Wizards and the Dungeons & Dragons brand really kind of leaning in to these older settings that people really love. And, and starting to bring them back i have a lot of those original campaign settings so i've got like the original box set for ravenloft and planescape and forgotten realms and it's really fun to see a lot of this stuff getting pulled back into the mainstream narrative of D. very cool so meanwhile hickman and weiss went on to be incredibly successful writers they wrote more than 30 novels together I didn't realize this at the time, but I actually read one of their sci-fi series in high school and really enjoyed them so much that I wound up basing one of my D&D characters a few years ago on one of the characters from those books, and I didn't even realize the connection.
1: Oh, how funny.
0: Yeah. They've also, you know, they've had a lot of success in the gaming industry outside of their involvement with Dungeons & Dragons. Like, so much so that, honestly, if I tried to list all their accomplishments, we'd be here for like an hour at least but let's just say that their level of success is beyond impressive and that said (laughs) this needs to be noted Weiss and Hickman wound up filing a lawsuit against Wizards of the Coast in 2020 and it was revealed in this lawsuit that they'd been hired to write new Dragonlance novels and then there was some sort of alleged breach of contract
1: oh
0: yeah it does sound like things worked out though because the authors voluntarily dismissed the lawsuit, and they have a new Dragonlance novel called Dragons of Deceit that's due to hit stores in August. Oh. Wow. So thus lending further credibility to the theory that we're about to get a bunch of new Dragonlance content.
1: Well, something to look forward to if you live in the Dragonlance
0: world. (laughs) So, yeah, that is where we're going to leave off today. Next episode, we're going to finish up our talk about the early D&D comics by looking at one of the original series DC did and then discussing that initial publishing partnership overall. But before we move on to Brain Wrinkles, do you have any final thoughts about the Dragonlance Saga?
1: Overall, no. I think my (laughs) thoughts have been pretty clearly defined at this point. I would like to reiterate that I don't love the uh, use of classic Native American tropes on some of these characters. Oh, I didn't like that some of the, like, dwarf characters were, like, so stupid. Like the gully dwarves. Yeah. That felt a little... That felt gross for some reason, and maybe I can't put my finger on it, but, I mean, just in general, maybe it was just the whole, like, making fun of little people thing, but...
0: Yeah, it's, um... eh you know there, there was that it also felt like if you look at if you look at the art like the women are all almost always a bit more scantily clad
1: yep even in the snow
0: i was just thinking about that i can't, what was that character's name nope. where she's in like her pants she's in the fur lined booty shorts <laughs>
1: well both so lorana had like it was like both tika and lorana yeah i don't know most of the women though just had like were barely wearing anything and it was like that's not practical
0: i'm okay so what was the uh bikini mail? is that what they used to call it like where it was like you yes. know dudes were always in like heavy armor and then women were always in it was basically just small metal circlets suspended by like you know the the chainmail bikini <laughs> it didn't, yeah you know the, the chainmail equivalent of dental strange. floss
1: pretty much you can tell it's it's not there to really serve a purpose it's just there for the the show of being there
0: yeah and it's it's really interesting because you look at fantasy depictions these days of women and there has been an evolution in how they are presented where these days they are far less sexualized
1: yeah i would agree with that for the most
0: part it's interesting to go back and read the stuff from the 80s when this setting was still in its infancy, and seeing what people were being given to consume, even though two of the three people who were responsible, in a large sense, for these novels, for this setting, were women.
1: Yep. Interesting, huh?
0: Hmm. I don't know. I'm wondering if they kind of got overruled, you know, on how this stuff was going to go But also, the
1: internal misogyny (laughs) runs deep.
0: Yeah. What do you say that we ride our dragons out of here and over into the land of brain wrinkles?
1: May I instead have a griffin?
0: All out. We are now at brain wrinkles, which is the part of the episode where we talk about that one thing that has just been kicking around our head for the last couple of days. I've been talking a lot this episode, so do you want to kick things off?
1: Yeah, you you really carried the weight of this episode, Mike. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> So, this is not an ad. I'm just going to say that ahead of time. <laughs> Could be. Call me. Um, but no, I... Okay. Mike, I bought the coolest thing from this company called Geeky Clean. Like, geek with a Y. Geeky Clean.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they sell geek, like, personal hygiene products.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: So, I bought... Because I Okay, so I'm going to a hotel soon that has a bathtub. I'm very excited about it. I do not have a bathtub at my home, but I got a hotel room that has one of those bathtubs that you can like all the way be in, and I am very excited mm. about Yeah, it's called like a serenity tub or something. Mm, come for me, serenity tub. So, I mean,
0: that sounds like something out of D&D. <laughs>
1: dude, right? Well, this will be out of D&D because I bought these bath bombs that are shaped like d20s.
0: Nice. They
1: come in all of these amazing like scents, like one is like this herbal one with like eucalyptus and stuff and I got like a watermelon one and I got a peach one. But the coolest thing is they have a full set of D&D dice in them.
0: Oh, that's so cool. So basically you throw it in the yeah. bathtub and then you get the the d yep. the d20 or d8s whatever afterwards
1: yeah yeah it's a it's a legit full set of dice, so you get a d twenty you get you know you get a percentile dice, you get all of the d you know d six d eight it's yeah, 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 you get a full set,
0: oh my God, that's fantastic. what scent of bath bomb do you think Racelin would use? I'm curious,
1: oh, he'd probably use like something with like cedar wood in it or something
0: i <laughs> I feel almost like he would need something that's, like, denoting how he is better than people. Would Cedar would be that scent?
1: I don't know. Goodness. He'd probably want something expensive. What's an expensive one? (laughs) Like, hard to get. He's like, I need the the blue dandelion flower from the top of the highest mountain on Kryn. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the tears of children.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, like, what, what would the, what is it, Yankee Candle, is that it? Hold on. Oh
1: my god,
0: the Yankee Candle equivalent. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine whatever the Dragonlance equivalent of the Yankee Candle store is, Raystel walking in and just being like, I need something that smells like I'm better than you. I can <laughs> see all of time. <laughs> what scent conveys that I see when you're going to die?
1: Oh no! Right,
0: like, like he was oh such a goodness. douche. He keeps on talking about that too. He's like, oh, I can see time wearing everyone down, and like how it flows around you and you wasting away. I'm like, you're fun at parties, dude.
1: Dude, he was such a bummer. He was like, I've I didn't want to be around him. I was like, why? Why are we still hanging out with this guy? Like, what are you still doing here?
0: We got less and less time with him. Like, <sighs> and I was really glad about that because I was yeah, like, I really don't like you. You're you're just awful and like i'm like and your brother's really nice and then you you're just a dick to him
1: there was that whole confusing subplot about how they were in that weird dream thing but like it wasn't really happening but then like he turned into like some black wizard and then like but he didn't really but then i was like what what okay
0: yeah and he he am i getting that wrong did he
1: actually turn into a black wizard like, I don't no, know.
0: he did. I think he did for a little while. It was he.
1: Oh, for fuck's sake, Raceland,
0: He had a one sided conversation from our perspective with his source of power. And then he gained the power to bail them out. And he was like suddenly like youthful and energized again. And then his robes were black. And then it went back. You know, whatever. I
1: don't yeah. OK, like, that's what I thought. It was it was very confusing because he was only like robes were black for like a sec. And then he was like, I am weak and fragile again. Yeah. But wasn't it yeah. because he was like, take he was like drawing off of like his brother is strong and he was drawing off of his brother's strength. Like it was this weird like succubus situation because his brother was like, what's happening to me? And he was like, I'm stealing your energy. Ah, 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 ah. You know?
0: <laughs> I don't remember at this point. I like,
1: <laughs>
0: it, it is so dense. And I read it relatively fast just because there's so much content to burn through ahead of this episode
1: hard same yes
0: i mean you know that sounds like they're dynamic
1: (laughs) so well geeky clean is they're a british company from the uk so uh i did have to have them send it to me from england but i'm i'm sure it'll be well worth it i'm gonna use them next weekend nice so what about you what's your what's what's a wrinkling in the old brain ski
0: i have been thinking a lot about fantastic beasts three a new movie oh, that no. just dropped last weekend. And I actually wrote about it on our Twitter account for a minute because I was like I'm I'm taking a minute aside from oh,
1: good. Please do. from
0: obscure comic books and I'm talking about this and how I think it's I think it's gonna bomb harder than a lot of people are, are expecting it to. I don't know. I you know, I was really worried that a lot of people were gonna just ignore all of the problematic elements about JK Rowling and they were gonna go see this movie anyway. And, you know, it, it did take number one of the box office, but it, I mean, it made a lot less than the previous entries into the series did. And we are recording this on the second Saturday that it's in theaters. So we don't know how its box office performance is going to be this weekend. But I think it's looking like this movie is going to be a bomb. Like, it's going to largely be one of those things where people look at it and they're like, that thing landed in the theaters like a wet fart for how much it costs to make. (laughs) Um, I
1: hope so. I mean, I just, we need to stop giving this a platform.
0: Yeah. But it's just, it's something that I think about and it makes me really kind of, I don't, I don't have a huge connection with Harry Potter. Like in in a lot of ways, like I read the books, but I was never one of those really diehard fans. But at the same time, you know, we, you and I and Sarah met because our friend, Maya, Took us to a, a Harry Potter trivia event. And it's strange to me how this event that introduced a number of queer people who became really good friends has wound up becoming this brand that is very synonymous with being queer phobic in a lot of ways. And yeah. it makes me a little sad that that our origin is now associated with this very toxic brand, but it also makes me kind of glad to see that people are not supporting that toxic brand with their wallets. So mm-hmm. You know, just just something yeah. that I've been I've been watching a little bit from the sidelines and thinking about. And then we have a video game that's coming out later this year, and based on how the movie is doing, I think that game is gonna it's gonna get just swallowed up whole. I think it's gonna just completely bomb when it launches later this year. And mm. I mean, on one hand, that's good, you know, because it's people not supporting a very toxic brand and hopefully that brand will continue to diminish but at the same time i know what's going to happen to the studio that developed it because they're going to probably if not get shuttered outright they'll see a large swath of layoffs so nature of the beast i guess but just yeah Yeah. just you know something that i've been uh i've been considering lately yeah but yeah well we will be back in two weeks to finish up our look at the Dungeons and Dragons early round of comics, and until then, we will see you in the stacks.
1: Thanks for listening to Ten Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website.
0: This episode was hosted by Jessica Fraser and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits in transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com.
1: If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to 10centtakes.com or shoot an email to 10centtakes at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter the official podcast account is 10 cent takes jessica is jessica witha and jessica is spelled with a k and mike is van Sau, v-a-n-s-a-u
0: if you'd like to support us be sure to download rate and or review wherever you listen
1: stay safe out there
0: and support your local comic shop